that's interesting subject matter. I think like poo and sex, those are interesting subjects. Poo and sex. <laughs> Anything that's taboo and gross and that's normally not talked about, I have an interest in that. That's like a nice conversation for me. Even just, you know, very emotional or visceral things. I was never a small talk kind of person. I was always like, let's talk about something that's going to make us squirm. Welcome to another episode of Bite Size Biographies, the podcast of life stories. My name is Corey Thorpe. If you'd like to send in your story or tell your life story, visit bitesizebiographies.com slash story. And if you have a friend who enjoys stories, please share this podcast with them. Be sure to listen until the end of the episode for some extra information about this podcast and a promotion for another podcast you might enjoy. A quick note about this episode. Though it's titled Lisa, I'll be using my guest's nickname Tia instead. Now, on to this episode's conversation. Tia, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for coming on my podcast and um, telling your life story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Why don't we uh, start at the beginning? What was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? Um. So I was... Born in Interior, BC, in Canada, uh, so in the interior of British Columbia, um, and it was a really small town. And my parents eventually moved us uh, more into the mainland, so like in the metro area of Vancouver, um, which is like the largest city here. Um, and the city that we moved to, it's it's kind of more crime filled. Although at the time when I was younger, it was just a really blah place to live. Um, and my parents are both uh, immigrants um, from India. So my dad was, I, no, he was, he's been here since he was like six. Um, whereas my mom, like maybe in her 20s, she came to Canada. So they're not very conservative, although the, I think, Indian culture in general is quite conservative. Um, and particularly it's a bit, I, I would say it's quite like a misogynistic, uh, culture. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. So there's, there's very clear divides between boys and girls for sure. Like, especially I know in, uh, actually in India, there's like, there's a whole deficit of women there because so many people kill their infant daughters. Oh my God. Um, and it's actually illegal to find out if you're having a boy or a girl. So when you're pregnant, it's not, you're not even legally allowed to know the gender because it's so likely that you would have an abortion or kill that baby. Wow. Yeah. So, and that being said, even in, I think the, like the West, like or, uh, Indians living in like the diaspora, they still sort of carry on that internal misogyny. At least in my assessment, that's how it is. Um, so I do have two brothers um, and I have an older brother and a younger brother. Um, and so there was like a little bit of a divide between us as well, because they were both put into sports um, and I wasn't. Um, my dad was an athlete as well. So he um, was like a national or international athlete as well. So when he had, and my mom had kids, they put both of the boys into sports. And a lot of my life was wrapped around that. So there was a lot of athletic sort of stuff going around physical training, you know, 
having to work out was very common for me from a very young age. And it's always been, and now as an adult, it is important to me, but back then it really wasn't important to me. And it seemed like a sort of like a cage, you know, like this thing oh, that wow. you had to yeah, waste your time on. And I don't know, it just, it wasn't, it didn't really interest me back then. And my brothers were training and working out for, you know, six hours a day sort of thing as we were growing up. Um, so and, I want to, I want to pause you yeah. for one second. I want to, mm-hmm. this is going to sound silly, but what is diaspora? It's, it's, oh, it's people that live, um, so outside of the main country. So like, let's say if you're from India or China and you're living in America. So like people from India typically immigrate to the UK, Canada, or the U S. So all those other places where there's large populations of people from a certain part of India, we would say it's the diaspora or, you know, alternatively if you're Chinese or something, right? So you could say I'm, I'm Chinese living in the diaspora you know, living in another settlement, right? So the, gotcha. even in the community I currently live in, there's quite a bit of Indian people here. There's quite a bit of Chinese people here. Um, so they can kind of cultivate their own sense of community again, outside of their country of origin. And you said you were born in the interior. Does that mean the middle part of the province or does it just mean not on the coast? Um, it's kind of like the caribou area. So there's just like a bunch of small towns there that kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's not along any sort of like coast or anything. It's just literally smack in the middle. In the, in, yeah. In the middle. Um, yeah. How old were you when you moved from the middle to the side? Um, maybe five or six. When was your younger brother? You have an older mm-hmm. brother and a younger brother. When was your younger mm-hmm. brother born? He was just one year younger than me. Yeah. Yeah. So there was definitely a lot of, um, I, I wasn't really connected to my siblings when I was younger. So I would say from, you know, uh, age, you know, six to 15, they were just always very separate from me because they were pursuing their athletic careers and developing their athletic careers. Whereas I was on my own a lot. So I became very independent at a very young age because I didn't really I I didn't have, I wasn't pouring my time into a sport like sports or self-actualizing myself, you know, in the physical realm, like they were, um, I was just sort of chilling the forgotten sort of person. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you, you, you mentioned the sports and, and working out and stuff. Were you, were you also doing it, but just not pursuing a specific sport or did that come later that you did it? No. So I just, I did, I was really, did, I didn't really connect with my dad. So, um, working out or pursuing a sport was like, if I did that, I would have to be around him more. And that didn't really appeal to me. Um, yeah, I just, I wasn't really connected with him. I was very disconnected. I am even now very disconnected with him. Um, so I just tried to stay away from it as much as I could. I was also, um, sort of fat when I was a kid, I was sort of like, I wouldn't say because my family standards are such that they don't really align with the general standards, but like in my parents' eyes, I was overweight. Although I would say in general, I was just chubby as a child. Um, and so another thing I think that sort of punctuates our culture is the importance of female beauty. Um, and that comes in the form of being slender, having fair skin, being tall, being lean, all those things. And I wasn't those things as a child. Um, so I feel like, (laughs) I feel like my parents weren't really too concerned with me because 
because we have so many family members and our community here is so large, uh, reputation was quite important to them as well. So my brothers were often trotted around because they were, you know, these superb athletes, you know, who were very physically beautiful and everything like that, um, as a point of, uh, you know, a reputation building for my entire family, I would say. Even my grandparents were quite proud of that. Um, and, um, and you weren't. Yeah. And I wasn't. Um, so. and, <laughs> and I wasn't any of those things. Yeah. So was this around like you said six that it kind of started that they started training and you started yeah. kind of going off and doing your own thing? Yeah. So I was what was sort the, of alone? Yeah. What was that like? Yeah. Your your dad and your brothers would go off and train and maybe your mom would go with them and what would like what was a day like my for you? My mom was just my mom was very um on, like she just wanted to do her own thing. She's very into and appearances. So she would be, I don't know, just somehow more involved with that. She, we, we weren't too like, we, we did have family events and stuff like that. Like we would go on little trips and have experiences together as a family. But I would say on the day to day, she was often just watching TV or whatever. And I was, you know, in my imaginary little world, hanging out with friends or playing independently. So that was, that was a typical I mean, I don't know if yeah. you remember being six very well, but yeah. that, was, that was a typical day for you as a, as, yeah. a, as a child was you were with your friends or you were doing something on your own, your brothers and yeah. your dad were off doing their thing and your mom yeah. was off. Yeah. I would say too, that like, I was just really unhappy as a child. Like I was, I felt really, um, I hated being around my family. I was very unhappy in that way. Um, so, and also I think even though I was too young to understand, you know, the female male dynamic, I had internalized some sense of like, I'm not as, um, worthy as maybe my male siblings were. Um, so I was very unhappy. I mean, with all the, you know, all that attention being placed on him, I could certainly understand mm -hmm. how you could come to that conclusion. Yeah. It wasn't even necessarily the, the attention. It's just like when you sort of feel like dismissed in light of, you know, but th that being said too, I was, I was not too involved with my family. I was, I've always been on my own and independent, even psychologically. Like, you know how sometimes you, people feel a part of something. I never felt a part of anything. And the first time I had a sense of family was in high school when I uh, met my like my core group of friends. That was the first time I felt like I'm part of something that I want to be a part of and that I think is worthwhile. Um, so yeah, when I went to high school, I connected with three other girls and it was just like, that was the happiest time of my life up until that point was having, we called ourselves the core four. <laughs> that's cool well so yeah. before you before you got to high school you're mm -hmm. you're a kid you're off doing your own thing you mentioned mm -hmm. grandparents did, did your grandparents live around you when you were a kid um they still lived in the interior but they eventually did move down okay so you might yeah. see them for like family events and stuff like yeah, that Yeah, or yeah we would sometimes we'd go up there for the summer or something like that um because they had their house there and it was on like this huge plot of land um, and we would hang out with them there. Do you remember any specific like, uh, hobbies or things that you specifically did for fun? You mentioned that you hung out with like your friends and stuff. 
yeah. other things that you guys that you recall doing or any any like uh, games when or, I was younger. Yeah, when you were a kid. Okay. Oh, uh, when I was a kid. Or just any dreams or hopes or like what what, what was the mind oh, of six year old oh, yes. Tia like? I re- I remember thinking, and I still remember this to this day, that this is going to be a good life. I just have to figure out how to get out of here (laughs) as if like, yeah. So like, as if like, and I've described it like this before too, as if there's a light, but there's a whole bunch of craps on top of it and you just have to dig your way down. But there, like I felt at my base nature is joyous. That's what I felt. I felt like the very nature of my being is to be very happy and elastic. So even though I was growing up and I was very stressed out or, or whatever, um, or I felt really insecure and didn't f- quite have my footing. I felt that once I sort of have that and figure myself out and get, you know, a, a lot more independence, that's all going to peel away. And there's this, there's this like li- light in my stomach, like in my tummy, that's like light. And I just need to burrow down in there and pull it out sort of thing. Well, that's probably the best positive energy that you could have inside of you yeah so i always knew that the way i was feeling it was situational it wasn't i wasn't um you know depressed or stressed uh you know as an actual that wasn't in my spirit to be that way that was just the situation and if i could emancipate myself from the situation i could get into that that core of my nature were there times when you were a kid where you felt relieved of that or like you felt good like you felt like the weight was lifted off your shoulders or was that always in the back of your mind like i need to yeah it was always in the back of my mind it was always in the back of my mind i feel like because when when you're young and i mentioned this when i was talking to a friend as well who's um chinese um which i think there's a lot of parallels between the chinese and indian culture in that physical abuse gendered um, discrimination is really really common and it's normalized within the home that being said when you live in a western country like canada or america the moment you step out of your front door you're back into the Western values. So hating your children is no longer okay. Discriminating your on um, gender for your children is no longer okay. And so it's like this juxtaposition between your home reality and the reality of those Western, you know, society that you live in. Um, so that was really difficult for me to negotiate. The fact that um, it's okay to get hit and verbally abused at home, but you know, that's not what this actual society that I live in, you know, stands against those practices. And I was aware of that because going, you know, to elementary school or high school, no one else was experiencing those things, especially not my white friends. Right. Um, so it was like, oh, this is so weird because, and I would get this feeling too, when I would be walking away from my house that like, uh, I was walking out of a fog of a certain way of behaving and a mode of reality, right? Just like the more I wanted to be more in that society that was um, with which my values aligned with more because I didn't believe in the things that were sort of happening in my home. I, I thought, which were very emotional, I think. I think ethnic homes can sometimes be very rooted in emotion and reputation, whereas society, like at least in my my understanding of it is more based in logic and 
um, having reasoning behind certain action, right? Because there's, there was no, it, it was very chaotic. In my mind, my home was very much just chaos, right? No, no, uh, deliberation in how things were done, no deliberation in the way we treat each other or what we do is my parents were very, um, you know, like basic people. They weren't cerebral people. They weren't thoughtful people. Um, they were very preoccupied with superficial things and superficial pursuits, in my opinion. You mentioned a few events, like physical mm -hmm. events or mm -hmm. uh, verbal events. Mm -hmm. um, but then previously you mentioned values. For example, you said that you perceived your own value as maybe lesser than your brothers, your male, male brothers. Yeah. Did you see those value reflections in your peers or as a, as a child, as a young person, how did you interpret? Maybe you had a friend who had a brother. Did, did you think that she was valued less in her home or did you think oh, that wait, only yeah. happens in my house? Sorry. I should say though, um, even I, I don't think I, I understood that being chubby or being female made my parents or the wider, maybe society that we like our, you know, our ethnic community think less of me, but I actually never felt that I've always been really, really secure in myself. And I, I remember thinking that my parents opinion doesn't real isn't really worth anything. And that's even my disposition today. I'm very much rooted in my, my view of myself. It, I, I, I inherently have value because I feel value in myself. It doesn't matter that I used to be or I am ugly or whatever. Um, it's, it transcends that. And it all like, it always, even as a child, I was like, I don't give a fuck what my parents think. So you didn't feel devalued, but you knew you acknowledged that the cultural pressures that you saw. Yeah. No, like I, I, yeah, I sort I knew that being unattractive in this sort of cultural society made you worthless. I understood that. You mentioned women before as well, female. Yes, women, right? But I, I didn't internalize that in that I saw a basic value in myself that I've pretty much always had. And now I've, as an adult, I've been able to manifest that more. But as a child, I'm, I'm sure I, I absolutely had general insecurities and things like that. But I, I was not an innately insecure person. And that's one of the things that I'm always really in awe of is if your literal parents or your, your, you know, your immediate family maybe doesn't think that you're worth much, but you as an adult become very confident. I think that's kind of cool because you weren't socialized in that way or, you know, ever made to think that because the question that I was trying to drive at was, I'm curious if as a young person, you identified that these values or some of these values were part of the culture of the diaspora, as you put it, or your, your group of, of, of people and not the culture of the Western civilization that you lived in? Or did you just think, oh, a woman is just less important across the board? I don't think I, I don't think that I, I understood that's the way that like, it, it's sort of viewed within our culture, but I never, I've never fully subscribed to that ever or, or ever felt too moved by it. Because I think the moment you're outside of that environment, I don't actually feel any sort of gender discrimination within my actual society. 
And that's kind of what I was getting at. So it sounds that's very interesting to me. It sounds like once you mentioned like leaving this fog or leaving your house, it sounds like once you left, even as a young mind, you were able to really understand the stuff that is outside of my home. I see as normal. Yeah, I think one of the things, though, I think is what makes mature children is when you have a lot of adult experiences as a child, um, you become mature very early on. So you start thinking and realizing about these, you know, weird patterns and things like that as a child, because you're, 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 you're having adult experiences as a child. Right. Um, and you're faced with these interesting sort of conundrums that make you think about the way we move in the world and the way we are in the world. Whereas maybe a child that grows up in a really secure house where everything is done with a lot of intention and deliberation doesn't have those moments of needing to make sense of what's happening because their parents, you know, do that for them. Do you think that you still had that childhood experience, even though you had those adult experiences that made you maybe a little bit more conscious of what was going on around you? So were you able to still be sort of naive and blissful and ignorant and just kind of like play on the playground and not be stressed about adult stuff like other kids? I think to a degree, yes. Um, I, th I think I was. I think when I left my home and I was just with my friends, I was able to shed that uh, until I came back home. So I, I would say, yes, I did have a normal childhood as long as I wasn't around things that were too heavy or a, like mature for mature subject matter for my age. Um, but yeah, so it, it was in high school though, that I, I really sort of started to connect with, other people and sort of start unraveling things more for myself. Um, and it was in, I think I was in eighth grade when I met like my best friend and I remember seeing her and just seeing her in the gym for like PE and knowing like, Oh my God, there she is. That's the girl. That's <laughs> the girl for friend. me. Yeah. That's my best friend. And it was so, it was such a like, it was actually, it felt like love at first sight. It absolutely felt like love at first sight. And I was like, this feeling of like, I'm going to get to know this person. We're going to love each other like very deeply. Um, so we, yeah, so we became friends and I, it was like, so her name's Catherine and we had two other girls that we were friends with as well. Um, and we were, when did the they come floor. along? They were actually with me from elementary school, but we hadn't fully connected until high school and we hadn't fully sort of created our little posse. And I just, I like, kid you not, you couldn't have a more like wholesome experience because I know a lot of people think like girls in high school, they're very catty and there's a lot of drama you know, internally and stuff like that. It was like the exact opposite of that. It was just like this loving group of girls. We had each other's back. We would laugh and, you know, spend hours and hours together. Um, and it was just, it was such a wholesome experience. And it was really like a coming of age sort of thing for me because it was both the experience of having this tight knit group of friends, but also experiencing for the first time a, a deep and intrinsic sense of family with people who were very consistent in how they behaved. So like, whereas my family members, there's a lot of um, ab random abrasiveness or uh, just randomness, chaos, like, like I mentioned chaos, right? Um, whereas with my friends, it was for the, for the first time I could expect some sort of consistent behavior from 
this close group of loved ones. So how did the friends that you knew before uh, Katie, how did they go from maybe more general acquaintances to kind of the inner circle, the core four? It just sort of fell together. Like, yeah, yeah, there wasn't any sort of, you know, design to it. I think we just we weren't really connected in elementary school. And then in high school, we really sort of like just jived better and really connected with one another. It was also in high school that I um, really started to get into painting and art and artistic expression. And I was so into that. Um, And I just, I just had a wild time in high school. Like I just did a lot of fun, weird things. And I was very much naive and innocent in that time period. Like I was just a girl, you know, I was just like this young girl. (laughs) So, I mean, it sounds like your high school was action packed, but I want to go back to eighth grade. I want to go back to the gym when you see Katie and you think I'm going to love this person and she's going to love me back. But at this point, from what you've said, it sounds like you're not super sociable. So did you already have the confidence and. Oh, I, no, I was sorry. I was always very social. So I was, I've been picking up people left and right for like friends. I can make pretty immediately. Okay. You just, you didn't have a lot of closeness with these, these friends. I think in elementary school, like, I think you're too young to have like a true sort of deep connection with anybody. And maybe in high school, you're a bit more mature where you can actually, you know, extend yourself more. So I never had trouble with, you know, making friends and stuff like that. I was very social my entire life. Um, But it was in high school where it was a semblance of maturity had developed in all of us. And we were able to be friends in a more cohesive way, I would say. So then it wasn't hard for you to approach Katie, say, hey, my name's Tia. How are you doing? Let's be friends. <laughs> yeah, I had to pursue her, too, because she's very um, shy. And she was very closed off. As I think a lot of people are. So it's kind of surprising to me to hear that you were you were already like, you know, friend making machine. <laughs> but um, was it was it not until you actually got into high school? Like, is it ninth grade in Canada or what's considered uh, high grade. school? Oh, so high school is eighth grade. Ah, okay. That makes a lot more sense then. So you met her in high school and then those other two friends, you, you all started kind of hanging out. And Yeah, we all started hanging out. I'm from the US and here most people would say high school is like ninth grade. So when you said eighth grade, I was, I was confused. <laughs> oh, so you would still be in elementary school in eighth grade? We actually have a thing called junior high here. Oh, okay. We have a, a needless additional institution. So we have... Elementary school and then junior high for only two years and then high school for four years. Oh, right, right. Okay. Oh, I thought I thought junior high was only a thing in certain like dense, dense communities. Um, so that you could that's, start, yeah. That's possible. I've only lived in pretty dense communities, so oh, it's, okay. it's possible we don't have it everywhere, but it's a common common to most people that I've interacted with. So I thought you were eighth grade for us is the end of junior high. So I thought you were meeting Katie at the end of junior high, but you were actually meeting her at the beginning of high school. Yes. Yes. And so high school for Canada is eighth to what? Twelfth. What was it like being in eighth grade? Were you, you were still in Vancouver? You got, you all hadn't relocated yeah. or gone anywhere? No, we were still there. Um, I would say like it was around then that I started to No, maybe it wasn't around then. I I would say in the middle of high school, maybe grade 10 or grade nine, um, I started to like sort of develop into like a woman. So like I got taller, I got skinnier. I 
just, I think I just became more attractive <laughs> in general. <laughs> and, um, that sort of, then I started like dating and stuff like that. And that was sort of an interesting experience because previous to that I had understood like, okay, I'm the fat person or whatever. Um, and yeah, that's not really a thing for me. And I also sort of had this weird feeling with my identity too, because I, f- and I've described this before to my friends and stuff. Like sometimes when I look in the mirror, I'm this very sort of complicated looking person in that I have brown skin. I have huge curly hair, but in, in, in myself, I always felt like, um, like just a plain Jane sort of girl, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) because I would always be getting called exotic by people that I would date and stuff like that. I was like, Oh, you're so exotic. You're so exotic. Oh my God. And it would always be like white males approaching me and wanting to date me. And so like within high school and then in, into university, it was like a lot of my dating experiences were with white males who were wanting an exotic girlfriend. Well, I can understand how you would look at yourself and think I'm me, but how, how did it feel when people would say that to you? Was it just confusing or did you have a reaction when people would call you exotic and approach you like that? I think people want to be differentiated, right? And so maybe I liked it at some point, but then I quickly realized that um, it was a point of like, you know, people, white people accessorizing with your, uh, your, your otherness, right? Like you, your visual difference. Cause I think sometimes we think like, uh, let's say if we see a white guy with like this very exotic looking girlfriend, we ascribe to him this idea that he's cool. He's, you know, he's, he's worldly. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so like I would, I would have a lot of experiences where people would approach me and say things like, what's your ethnicity and stuff like that. Because I think, so from the part of India that I'm from, it's like, it borders so many other countries. And so we're very ethnic like ethnically we're not really pure we're very mixed and so we have a lot of different looking people you can have a very dark-skinned person with very straight hair and a cute little nose then you can have a you know there's just a lot of of disparity between how they look because they they're very mixed right um so then people were constantly thinking that i was another race or something or as a mixed race person but i'm not a mixed race person um and Yeah. So it was then really that I realized that a lot of people who didn't know me, like beyond my core four and everything like that, I was this complicated looking person that had this mystery ethnicity or whatever. How does it feel both? How does it feel? And what is your response when someone comes up to you and says that? What is your, I don't think I've ever had anyone ask me in my life, what is your ethnicity? So what is it like when someone comes up and says, what is your ethnicity? How do you feel? What do you, what do you say to that? Oh, it was so okay. So it was so common that like when me and my friends would hang out or we'd go and like do activities and stuff that someone would use that as a, um, not a pickup line, but as a way to start a conversation with me. So I would do this funny thing where every single time I would just change it. (laughs) (laughs) And this was so funny for me and my friends that like, that I would do this because I would just pretend to be like, Oh, um, today I'm going to be Greek and Irish, or today I'm going to be, uh, um, from, I don't know, Iran and I'm going to be Iranian today. Could anyone ever tell? No, they would say, Oh, cool. That's cool. Because I think when you just have like a medium color of brown skin and then you have curly hair, 
Uh, like you have olive skin and you have curly hair. You could be from anywhere. Like that's not, it's not really, you don't look at that and think, oh, that's a, uh, that's an Indian person or something. You just like, that's an ethnic person of some sort. So you could just be like, oh, I'm Lebanese and, you know, something else. I don't know. You could just, you could say that and it's believable. As you described, you became a woman or maybe grew into yourself or however, how, whatever phrase we want to use. How did that go over in your house? Did you feel like you were getting more respect because you looked different? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, my body really, I became really lean and skinny and, um, I started to work out more, um, you know, I started to accept that and I started working out pretty seriously by the time I was 16. Um, so I was, I was working out quite a bit and really accepting that not part of my, yeah, it's, I guess it's a part of my pedigree to, to work out. Right. Um, so I started to lean into that and yeah, it just all sort of fell and like, it was like the ugly duckling turns not an ugly duckling, I guess. <laughs> did you, but did you notice either different treatment or maybe a different way that your family would look at you or talk to you or was it still the same? No, it changed, I think, because I also started to develop into an artist and then people started to recognize me for my art. And then so that's another thing that my parents could be like, oh, yes, we have these two athletes and then we have an artist, you know, like. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Yeah. So then it was a point of like, oh, and then they would like put my art around the home. And like, I would always draw and paint like naked female bodies. I was so sexual in high school. Like I was just a ball of like sexuality waiting to be unleashed. So that would come out into my art where I would be drawing like, like, or painting naked women, you know, boobs and all this stuff. And my parents would hang it up. Provocative imagery. Yes. Very provocative images. And then my parents would hang it up. Like, yes, there's our provocative child with all of her weird sexual musings it's all over our house you know uh. <laughs> <laughs> so was this um what was this sexuality a point of discussion in your core group or yes. i mean the way you described yourself before it sounded like you're kind of innocent and you know didn't no i i was like the one that was corrupting all my friends with sexual stuff i was like <laughs> I was always talking about sex. I was always talking about masturbating. I was always talking about having sex as if I was having sex, but no, none of us were having sex. Um, but I was just like, I just can't wait to have sex and I'm going to have all this sex. Meanwhile, I'm like <laughs> 15 or whatever. Um, and did they all seem cool with it? They were all very shy. They were all very shy, but eventually, slowly, I broke all of them and made all of them admit to just masturbating. I was like, I know that you masturbate. We're all human. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I slowly broke all of them. And I think my mom was like, really like, what the fuck is wrong with my kid? Because women, I think in our, um, in our culture are supposed to be very conservative sexually. So you're supposed to have sex, but you know, only with your husband and you're actually supposed to wait till marriage. And if you don't wait till marriage, you're actually considered like this corrupt sexual demon, this messed up whore sort of thing. <laughs> um, so to be talking about sex and I would always like, if there was like a family friend would come over to our house or something, I would always be joking about sex and talking about sex. And my mom really didn't like it. Um, but now she's like neutralized to it. It's like, I've said enough weird stuff to her that she's like just on the inside died 
from it, you know, because like sometimes when she calls me, I'll be like, how are you? Are you hot and horny? (laughs) (laughs) So she was she was uncomfortable with how much you were fascinated or obsessed with sex and sexuality, but she would hang up your paintings of boobs and naked ladies. Yeah, because that was so such a rarity because girls were like shamed into shutting the fuck up about sex, whereas like I wouldn't stop talking about sex and I didn't I did not think I was slutty because I was talking about sex. I was just like I I don't know. It was just like I've always been so like I would say like from 15 to now just like really into like being sexually open. And willing to have those, because I think that that's interesting subject matter. I think like poo and sex, those are interesting subjects. Poo and sex. <laughs> yeah, look, I want to hear about like people's. <laughs> well, let's go. Poop. Let's go more into yeah. that. We we haven't talked. We talked a little bit about sexuality. What? When did you discover a fascination for poo? <laughs> anything to do. Anything that's taboo and gross. And that's normally not talked about. I have an interest in that. And that's like that. That's like a nice conversation for me, I think, to talk about things that or even just, you know, very emotional or visceral things like um, people who open up and they don't want to do more than talk. Um, you know, it might be about their trauma. It might be about poo. It might be about sex. It might be about a hernia that they have. I don't know. It, that's just like what has always interested me. So I was never a small talk kind of person. I was always like, let's talk about something that's going to make us squirm. <laughs> well, I think poo and poo and sex, you bring up either of those. I think most people will be squirming in their chairs. Yeah. So 15 year old sexual obsession, uh, Tia, what, how was your relationship with your, your brothers and your, and your dad at this time when you're hanging up naked, naked lady pictures all over the place? Were they like, yep, that's, that's cool. That's fine. Or were they made a little uncomfortable by this kind of strong female presence in the house? We're, we're, we're all, no, we're all very like, as a family, we're very like, un, like not affected, phased by it. So I know like for me and my brothers, there's no topic that's off limits. We started to really come together when I was 16. I would say our relationship started to develop at 16. Um, my older brother, he's very complex. Like he's like an onion and there's like, I'm always peeling back new layers. He's very protective. Um, whereas my younger brother is just a sort of goofball. And he's always laughing and, you know, he, he's my, my older brother was like a moral guide for us. Whereas my younger brother was the sort of person that was very bad to the bone, bad boy. How much older is your older brother than you? He's four years. He's four years older than me. Yeah. Oh no, maybe he's, he's three years older than me. He's four years older than my younger. Would you say there was a specific catalyst that led to you forming these, this kind of bond with your brothers at 16 or was it just happenstance? I think it was just happens. It was just like the, I think it, that happens in life in general, art or go towards your siblings. But I would say starting from 16 and then progressing to now, we are just like I, I, in a love affair. Like there, I love them very deeply. And I, I, I didn't have that sort of relationship with them when I was like, let's say 10, where I was a very confused child. I would say now more together. And I really, uh, take the time to connect with them each, 
on, on their level because my my little brother especially he's not into having long form philosophical discussions and really peeling back you know his emotional trauma he's more like let's talk about the Joe Rogan podcast and about the housing market or whatever and then my older brother I make I have those more in-depth conversations and we connect. And so like, I, I take the time to connect with them on their level, I would say. Yeah. So beyond just desensitizing your mom to uh, talking <laughs> about sex and being horny and hanging up pictures, did anything, was there a substantial change in your high school years between your relationship with your mom or your dad because of like your looks changing or because of your art, your art being developed or anything like that? Or did it kind of stay? Um, no. It stayed the same. I started to spend a lot of time outside of the household. So I was like my, the first girl in my friend's group to get a job and start making money. Um, I started to date a little bit, although as much as I talked about sex, I was deeply actually really nervous about it. And I was not having sex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's always the person who's talking about it that's probably not really happening in high school, right? Um, I started to work uh a lot and i would work at like cafes and things like that and i started working around 16 pretty much immediately when you're legally allowed to work here um and i was trying on different things too like uh uh i was experimenting with different ways of being and and thinking philosophy and stuff like that i really landed on um anti-consumption and minimalism. And this was, this was way, way, way before any sort of the community around it, or there was even like, you know, a strong social media, like, you know how, like now it's like, you'll see minimalism all over the place. If you want to embody those values, there's so many, um, you know, resources for you to consume in order to make that jump. So for me, one thing I didn't mention previously was, uh, our culture is so materialistic. It's like, it is wildly materialistic. And it's, it's all about what you have, what kind of car you drive, what kind of clothes you wear, all that stuff. The Indian culture? I think so. Yeah. In my, in my experience, it is. And probably Western culture itself, right? I mean. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the perfect marriage of things. Right. Um, so my family is very materialistic and our, our, our childhood was very like, for me, at least, I was so crazy about toys and clothes and all that stuff when I was younger. So when I was in high school, I had this phase of consuming like luxury clothing and stuff like that and wearing this stuff. And then I I just stopped. I just did this year of like no, a no buy year. And I just went so hard in the other direction of minimalism and anti-consumption. And I, that's when I started my journey. So I, say, I would say I was 16. Was anyone in your high school doing that? Or was it like you just had this epiphany? No, I just was like, fuck this. I, this is so dumb, you know? It was like you in Vancouver and Marie Kondo in Japan simultaneously yeah. had inspiration from beyond of <laughs> yeah. minimalism yes. the yes. way to go. Yeah. So it, it wasn't even, um, I didn't, I wasn't like reading a book about it or anything. I just was taking stock of my own home and my own culture and my own, um, even with the girls in my grade, I think. And then thinking, this is not for me. I don't want to define myself by the stuff that I wear. And I stopped and I stopped buying stuff. And it was, it was pretty weird because in the context of my family, we were a lot of things were um, centered around consumption. So trips to the mall, 
um, buying new clothes, especially my mom is constantly like every single year updating her wardrobe and all that stuff and constantly getting new clothes. And, and I think it was, it's offensive to people too. I think when you say I'm not going to be doing this very common thing anymore. So people felt a little bit attacked and, um, but I stuck with it and I still do it to this day. I think it's, it's sort of weeded certain people out for me too. Like I, I would say in regards to dating now, it's like, I have to date someone who is minimalistic because we cannot be together. If you're not, I don't want to do trips to the mall. I don't want to receive gifts. I don't want to give gifts. I don't have those same uh, markers of like, even my, I, I would say for me, it's twofold too. Like I don't, um, it's, it's about the physical experience of like consuming things and then creating your identity out of that. And it's like, a, it has a spiritual impact on you. If your conception of yourself is outside of yourself, like if it's in the material realm, right? Um, so it's not just about like environmentalism for me. It's also about um, your sense of self, the impact on the spirit. Yeah. And the sense of self and creating the identity through what you have. Right. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So it was twofold for me. It's very interesting to me that it just came to you. Did the decision to embrace that happen gradually for you? Or did you just say, look, I'm going to do this now. And then you tried it and you just kept doing it. It, it was very much like, let's just do this. I'm just going to do this. I don't think there was a lot of, and it was funny because previous to that, I was so materialistic. Like I was like 15 years old spending like a hundred dollars on a sweater or something like that. And I, and I just, I, I, I can't remember actually what fully happened. Like I'm sure if I read back on my journals, there's some mention of it because it was such a drastic life change. But now that I'm thinking about it, I don't remember if there was like one moment where I was like, what the hell am I doing? Or something like that. I know that I, it just disgusted me. And even now, like I, it continues to disgust me. I don't want that to be a part of my life. I, it's, it's not a part of my reality. I don't do it. I want to tease what you said apart just a little bit. A hundred dollars on a sweater. What you mentioned was consumption and amount of things, kind of minimalist lifestyle. But $100 on a sweater is a value for a thing. So is it also that you don't see spending a substantial amount on something that should be relatively cheap as a good idea? No, because I think back that back when I was 15, like you could get like a decent sweater from like a regular company for like 30 bucks. But I mean, like I was consuming from a higher end brand that all the other kids were also consuming from here in Canada. So it was that, that why, why do I have to do that? Why can't I just wear the generic stuff? Because um, it doesn't matter to me. So it's not just a concept of minimalism from the standpoint of number of things, but it's a minimalism in the expenditure and the grandioseness of those things. Yeah, because having to start working or when I started working at 16, um, I was immediately good with money. So I immediately was saving all my money, spending it very consciously and being very deliberate with it. Um, and that has served me really well into adulthood um, because there's never a time when I'm struggling with paying my bills or struggling with planning for a certain thing. It's always figured out because because of my minimalist life, I just, my overhead is, is not, is not hard for the average person to have, you know, if you, if you work a normal job. You mentioned you'd have to go back and read your journals. What are your journals? 
So I started journaling when I was in grade nine. So 2009. Um, and I still have them and they're really stupid. Um, <laughs> like little issues that I had with my friends or I was really into shoplifting when I was a kid. So my little adventures uh, with shoplifting or, you know, probably a million and one things about sex that I'm not having. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the, the evolution of the journal was very stupid at, at first. It was very much like, what am I doing day to day? And now I would say in like 2019, my journals are a lot more sophisticated and they're a lot more stomping grounds for me to like unravel certain things about myself. Um, and it's, it's more like therapy now and it's more constructive. So I'll journal about something and then actually arrive to new conclusions and then really sort of chip away at um, sort of understanding, understanding of the self. Now, I want to talk about your journals because as a person who doesn't journal, it's fascinating to me. I also want to break down the word. When you say journal, what does that mean? What are you doing? So now I would say what I do um, when I journal is I actually write a heading. So I'll write like December 22nd and then I'll write dealing with, um, I don't know, whatever I might be dealing with, like dealing with hatred and then i'll i'll journal about that like really struggle with feelings of hatred or anger or rage and i'll try to dissect why that's happening or the origin of that and how i'm sort of working to combat it i might write about events i might just vent about stuff um it's it's really just an exploration and there's no uh, one of the things i hear from other people the reason why they can't journal is because of the need for perfection and consistency. I don't hold myself up to those standards. So sometimes I'll journal and I'll write like, like really messed up stuff about <laughs> like, if I'm in a fight with my boyfriend and they'll be like, it's really messed up entry assassinating his character. And it's just in, in a place of just like pain that I've written that. And then I'll look back at it and think, Oh my God, like chill out, honey, but I won't rip it out. I won't discard it. I'll keep it in there. That was just how I felt that day. And it's fine that, you know, whatever. But I, I sometimes laugh because I want all my journals to be, uh, open. So anyone can sort of pick them up and read them. So when I write these disgusting, foul things about a person that I'm angry with or having a trouble with, um, like, let's say with my current boyfriend, I've written all these things about it. What if my child reads that? And what if he's the father of that child? And the kid's like, oh, my God, like, yeah, what the hell? But yeah, so I want them to be open, you know, in, in a couple of years post, you know, producing each one. So I would say like my one from, you know, 2009, I'm comfortable with somebody reading that now because that's a whole different girl. I was going to ask you that. I mean, it's been 2009. It's now 2019. That's a lot of stuff for people to potentially see. Have you always had this mindset of a year or two later, it's okay if you read it? Have you ever been scared of someone reading it the next day or finding it? No, 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 no. I'm like, I actually, every time I write, it's, it's, um, it's like adding to this body of work almost. And I know that I, in order to make that body of work sort of, um, valuable i want to share it with other people if it's even if it's just my own children or my nieces and nephews or something 
that. It's just so cool, I think, to like have your mom or your dad have that a journal and that you can consume it, you know? I could understand consuming it later, but you've never been mm-hmm. scared that someone might read a scathing attack on their character the day after when you've calmed down <laughs> and you're not feeling that way anymore? No. I just trust that no one's going to violate it because um, the people that I have in my home, I don't think they would pick up my journal and read it. And if they did, uh, you know, then they're, then they might find something that they don't agree with or feel comfortable with, but it's not, it's not very often that I write, you know, in a, in a heightened emotional state that, but I'm saying it has happened. I get exactly where you're coming from, which is I'm not just letting strangers run through my house and pick through my drawers. Yes. Um, yeah. So where was I? Yeah. So I had a journal. I was working in high school. Were you a server or a waitress or what job did you have? I was just a barista. A barista. Okay. At a, at a coffee shop or a restaurant? Oh, it was always coffee shops and I'd work. Um, you know, I'd get different jobs all the time. And I was very good at getting jobs. Um, and I really loved being a barista because it's, it's like you're the best part of someone's day. So you'd have like all these positive experiences with so many people. Did you drive? No, I didn't drive until I was um, older. So I would just take drives up um, everywhere I would go. Um, and yeah, so then eventually I graduated high school and I, I, I did get a scholarship for art and, but I didn't end up pursuing art. I didn't want to do that. Um, I wanted to always have art as my own private personal thing on the side. Um, rather than to try to make a career out of it. So, yeah. And I think a lot of people expected me to, but I didn't. Um, and yeah. So after I finished high school, I got really depressed and, um, was really not doing well two years. Um, and I, yeah, I was like suicidal, I would say. Where did that come from? I don't know. I think my, my friends group deteriorated because everyone sort of, you know, we weren't seeing each other every single day. My best friend, she moved to Europe to go to medical school. Um, and so she was gone. I really missed her. Like that was so difficult, but I don't know. I don't like, I'm sure that was in part what sort of brought upon a depression for me, but I don't think it was that that was the only reason I, I do believe that it was just a a chemical thing you know that was also just happening because um and so then i started going to university after i finished high school as well and uh, i started going to university and i was like suicidal at the same time so i was just like on autopilot and um just going through my classes and going through my days. And I'd often like wear um, the same thing every single day. So like I'd wear the varsity sweater for the university and then I'd wear like just regular pants and shoes. And I would just be like going to school looking like just like you could see it on my face. And it was really funny because previous to my, my depression, like I was dating and stuff. But then when I became depressed, it was like I could not attract a friend or a lover to save my life. Cause I felt like when you're depressed, you have like this aura around you of just heavy, you're just heavy. Right. And people can read and feel it off of you. And it's just like this fundamental thing that just repels people. So I was also kind of just like 
not really making friends at university and I wasn't really dating. What were you going to school for? I was going to school for communication. When you were offered that scholarship for art, was it a difficult decision or were you automatically like, no, I'm not going to make that my profession. That's my hobby. Yeah, it was pretty automatic. I knew that I didn't want to do that. Was communication the automatic second choice or did that take you a while? No, I, I did. I did. Um take a lot of different subjects in a lot of different disciplines. And then I took one of like the entry level uh, courses in, in or programs in VCA or sorry, ugh, totally lost my thought. I took one of the classes that was like the first level class for communications. And I immediately fell in love and I was like, okay, I'm going to do communications. It's so cool. I love it. it. It's just like the perfect marriage of like media studies, philosophy, and like political science, I would say. It, it, for me, at least that's how I designed my degree. Too. I, I really wanted those topics to be covered. Um, so I started to do that and I was really dead inside. Um, I did like date a little bit, but it was never serious. Uh, and there was nobody of like real like substance. I was like, oh yeah, that guy's cool. I'm, I'm with him for like valid you know, like connection. And like, he really gets me. It was just like, mm, whatever, I'm dead inside. Were you simultaneously sort of enthused about communication and like your degree, but just this depression was overwhelming your ability to feel any positivity or what was, what was it like when you were describing that you had found this degree that you like, it sounded like, wow, you know, this is good. I like this. I want to do this, but you're also not feeling. I think, yeah, like learning was always my salvation, but I was still like, depressed out of my mind and not able to get out of it at all. Um, so I could focus on that. But I remember thinking like, I might as well complete this degree because if I don't kill myself, it would be good to have have a degree that will help me. So it was very like utilitarian sort of thinking and very like logical. I might as well stay in this because it's not going to harm me to complete it. Right? Yeah. So then I completed it. Oh, wait, no. Yes, I completed it. And I had I had started dating uh, my current boyfriend. We had started dating right when I was completing uh, university. So I was 22. I met my current boyfriend and we moved in together uh, about eight months after dating one another. And I started working desk jobs. <laughs> How did you meet your current boyfriend? I don't, we, we just met. We were just like, he's 10 years older than me. And so I didn't think of it as a serious relationship at first. I was very much focused on dating people who I, I had enjoyable sex with. And then like, I could also talk to them. So I wasn't taking him serious at um, But then over time, I just like fell for him. And then I, it became a serious relationship. Were you rocking the varsity sweatshirt and the regular pants and the regular shoes or had, <laughs> or had you, by that time I had sort of come out of my depression actually. So it, it slowly over time faded. Um, and I was, I was out of it and then I met him and how long yeah. did it stay with you? How long were you in that depression? You said two years or so. Two years. Yeah. So like even towards the end of university, I was like, so like for the first two years, I was like deep in it, deep, deep, deep in depression. And then I would say third year of university, I was recovering and not wanting to kill myself anymore. And then by fourth year, I was like, okay, I'm definitely not going to kill myself. I might have a modicum of happiness here and there, 
things are looking fine. I am fine. And that's when I met my current boyfriend. Um, and that's the first guy that I took seriously, uh, in, in, in like an actual relationship. All the previous partners that I'd had while I was studying or whatever were very like irrelevant and interchangeable. And, and I was, they were not of any worth mentioning even. Um, although I did have a few boyfriends that I had for a year, they were just kind of more like, yeah, like I'm exclusive with this person, but uh, they're not a, like, I don't care if they fall off the face of the earth tomorrow. Like they're interchangeable. <laughs> yeah. When you're coming out of the depression or when you're feeling better gradually in year three of university, what is it like? And I know this is probably not a super easy thing to describe, but how does it go from one day just everything's terrible and I can't feel joy to I'm feeling something nice. Do you notice something feels good that didn't before? Or how do you measure that you're feeling a little better? I, I, it's hard to say, but I think what it was, was the gradual coming out of it because I think there was times when I was like, okay, I am, I want to kill myself. I want to die. And then maybe in the next six months, you don't want to die. You're okay with living. And then six months later, I'm like, you know what? Living is not so bad. I like school. I'm, you know, I'm fine. Everything is chill. And then slowly, 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 you find that you're, you have more good days than you have bad days. And that's how, how it sort of, it like evaporated and then it was gone. And now it's like totally gone. Um, for me, like I, I would say when I moved out of my parents was such a game changer for me, I didn't realize how I needed to live alone. And I think we all have these sort of, um, you know, these, these requirements for, uh, a good life. And for me, I learned that, oh my God, I, I need to just live alone. That's very important to me. I cannot live with family members. I can maybe live with my romantic partner and that's enough. Like I can't have roommates. I just need my own space and I need my own security. And having my own apartment felt so secure because there's no one there to make you feel uncomfortable or to say something abrasive to you or to randomly have an outburst or to blast TV. It's your own space. You have complete control over it. Um, and there's no one there to interfere with your existence. So moving out for me was immediately like I went up like five notches on the happy scale. And when did you move out? When I was 23. Had you finished university? So I'd finished university and the place that I live in, it's incredibly expensive to buy or rent. Um, we're in a housing crisis here. Vancouver. Vancouver. Yeah. So like people will live with their parents until they're like 30 years old. Like it's really weird here. So like you'll meet somebody. It's very common, especially people of, you know, like immigrant parents to not live independently. They all live together. And it's very still like uh, a thing of contention for my family that I don't live with them because my, my two siblings continue to live with my parents and they will continue to live with them until they uh, purchase a property either here or somewhere else. So it's, it's like people just, it's, it's, it's a very um, scary place to buy or rent, I would say. Um, but yes, yeah, so I started to rent. When you started renting, did your family react negatively because you were renting and they they said, why don't you live with us? Or was it, why do they have that negative reaction? I think it's a cultural thing too. Like it's, oh, daughters are not supposed to live externally because I think it's like, you're supposed to protect their, um, 
like their chastity almost and like make sure that they're not having sex. And the fact that you're living outside of your, you know, parental home or whatever is it's like very frowned upon. It's like, why does she possibly need to live outside of her parents' home? She must be, you know, like needing to like have sex and is maybe a prostitute. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really, really weird because nobody, nobody in my ethnic group like does that. It's very uncommon. Beyond the prohibitive cost of the Vancouver area, it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing. Yeah. So lots of people don't do it. And, um, yeah, but I did it and I was immediately like so much happier, so, so much happier. Um, and I think the next biggest challenge in my life was, um, navigating like work because I started to work, uh, at, at a desk job. And that was like, so messed up for me because I, I, I didn't, I couldn't do it. Like I couldn't, the, the commute there to the office, sitting in the desk for eight hours and then being there for eight hours and then commuting back home at like six and having nothing left. It was like devastating for me. It was so devastating for me. And I was like, okay, here's chapter number two of like things to overcome. Having nothing left in the day. Ha yeah. And like, how do I negotiate work and life? how do I negotiate not having access to myself? Because I didn't have access to like enough of my time to be creative or to engage with my body physically, like exercise. My body was drained. My butt would hurt from sitting. Like my back would hurt from sitting in, in that way for so long. I hated the social experience, the, 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 you know, fakeness of having to talk to all these different people about nothing worth talking about. No one was talking about poo or sex, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe HR. <laughs> yeah. They were exclusively talking about, you know, reports and numbers. And I was like, guys, come on. You know, there's so much, so much poo and so sex to talk about. To talk, yeah. So much poo and sex to talk about. So I felt like an alien to myself and I was so depressed. So like I kind of had my second wave there, but it was very situational. Situational as opposed to internal. Yeah. So I needed to figure out how to solve this problem for myself. And the solution I found was I needed to find out what something I could do from home. Cause I thought as long as I can work from home, it's going to lighten the blow from like a punch to like a pinch. Right. Is that a phrase or did you just come up with that? I just came up with wow, that. That's pretty good. I, know, I, I think you can, you yeah. can market, you can shop that around. I think people could start saying yeah. that. I'm going to start saying that. <laughs> oh God. So, <laughs> so yeah. what kind of job were you doing that you had to go and sit at a desk all day for? I was doing marketing and communications jobs. So, um, but like that, that term marketing and communications is so ambiguous and like, weirdly meaningless because I was doing, I would go to my jobs and they would be so excited to have me on, but it was a bullshit job. There was no, um, I was not creating any value for the company. So in some of the positions I was working two or four of the eight hours and really I knew internally that I'm not producing anything of value that's actually going to translate to money for this company or more, you know, whatever, whatever you're trying to get here. It was just meaningless. And I was exhausted and scared about like, how can I do this for 40 years? I just can't. I'm going to die. I'll, I'll kill myself. I knew that I was going to kill myself to keep doing that. What did you think you were doing there if you didn't feel like you were producing value? Like, why would they have you around? Um, 
it's it's uh, there's like this there's actually a book called bullshit drops which really delves into it it's like about a company wanting to be or companies wanting to be like prolific and hire on people because it 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 that's the marker of success right you're hiring employees and employees are being tasked with certain things that will eventually help the company the thing is a lot of there's there's a lot of disorganization and chaos within companies and they don't realize that you know the social media coordinator she's doing work for two hours because you don't understand what she's doing to you. She's creating graphics and all this stuff. And that's difficult, but for her, it's, it's quite easy. And she's pumping out those, you know, pieces of social media content so quickly. Um, and maybe writing was easy for me. So I was just like, it, it would take me a fraction of the time. I would be like reading other things, doing other things. Sometimes I, if my boss wasn't in the office, I would go for two hour lunches and just chill and so, yeah, so I needed a solution for this and I started to f- try to figure out what could I do from home. And then I took a certificate in that. So I went back to school to a technical institute uh, in Vancouver um, to kind of learn new skills. So it was in like new media um, and web design, that sort of thing. And it was a year long. And so I wanted to have like tangible sort of skills, like hard, hard skills that like if I could like edit um, video or make a website. That's something I could do from home. I don't need to be in office to do that. And I, I had this idea that I'm just going to figure out how to do it. I don't care if I have to go and live in some small town and I only make 300 bucks a week. I'm going to figure out how to not work so much. I, I was even thinking I, I'll leave my boyfriend because I don't want to drag him down into this pathetic wasteland I'm going to. He needs to live his life. I don't want to drag anyone down. I'm just... I. And working is not for me. I'm not going to be doing that. No, thanks. Um, and so I went there and I did that program and it was a challenging year. It was very intense. This particular... Were you still working? Yeah. Oh, oh, you mean at a desk job? No, no, no. Because no. <laughs> me, the saver, I had saved every last dollar I needed to take that program, you know, without needing to go to school or start going to work. So I went to school full time for a year and... After that, I started working pretty immediately remotely from home. And it's it's been pretty sweet ever since. Oh. So how long did you have to do the grueling eight-hour desk job for? I did that for a year. And then in that year, I was I was I think I knew within three months that I'm gonna I this I can't this is not sustainable. I knew it was sustainable for other people, and I'm not saying that it's impossible for people to live like this or be like this. Just for me, it wasn't in the fiber of my being to live. Like that. I just couldn't, I just, because I don't care enough about money um, and having a, a robust career to exchange that amount of my life in order to get it. So for me, living in an obscure town, making a small amount of money, living out of a trailer or whatever, you know, maybe an RV or something was, more than enough because I would have time to exercise and meditate and paint and go into nature. Those were the things that I, I needed to make time for those things. Because to me, if you're gonna if I was gonna waste eight hours at a desk job for 40 years and then not get to have access to my physical person on a daily basis or my spiritual self on a daily basis, there was no point in living. I'm just a robot that's producing income for what? It didn't, it, there was no logic behind it. I, I need concrete motivation for things. Otherwise I just 
start to, I can't complete the task at hand. Um, but once I completed this program and I started working, it wasn't the case that I wasn't making enough money. I started to make enough money right away. So I didn't end up moving into some weird place, having to break up with my boyfriend and become this nomadic, um, hobo sort of person that I thought I would be able, like I thought I would become. I actually started making this, uh, the same income from home that I was making in the office and I was still only working a couple of hours a day. So I was very fortunate for that. It didn't take you long to find a position that would allow you to work from home? It, it, I, I, I'm going to say that it is more difficult because remote jobs are more competitive because more people want them. That being said, I sort of automated the whole application process. So like I had very um, detailed, well thought out cover letters for different industries ready to go where I could plug in the name of the company send it off with all my examples, everything. I'm such an organized person. So that made it easier for me because I had automated as much as I could automate for the job search. And then I'm just very meticulous. I have a planner every single day. If I have an idea or something, it's it's never done in, in a chaotic way. So I would say I make things easier for myself by being organized. That being said, yes, I do agree that getting remote jobs can be difficult. It's not impossible if you like, it's not impossible, right? It's just not impossible. You can figure it out. You can do it. But that amazing job I first had initially, I, I did lose it and that was devastating, but now I have another one. So what did you end up doing? Did you end up doing something similar to what you were doing in the office or is it different? It's, it's sort of different, like, but it's, it's actually not that different. A lot of the hard skills that I picked up at the technical Institute, I'm not using, and I have to keep brushing up on them because I don't want to descale. But right now what I do is like, I just work within real estate marketing. So I do a lot of like social media, um, marketing, a lot of, you know, composing of reports and stuff like that. But it, and not to say that I enjoy it, but I enjoy the lifestyle that it allows me to have. So because I do that, you know, my work, it, it doesn't excite me. It doesn't challenge me. It doesn't, it's not like, Ooh, I can't wait to do this. It's, but I am so grateful for it. There's not a day that I'm not like, I'm so happy that, you know, my boss hired me and that I get to do this job because it means that I get enough income coming in that I can, you know, live in my apartment. I can eat healthy food. I can have a gym membership. I can get my art supplies. I can go out and do little excursions that I want to do. And I just, I don't think that every individual has to have a career that, you know, both exciting, challenging and right up your alley. I think it's okay to have a job that provides for you the lifestyle you want to have that you don't hate. Like, I don't hate my job at all. I find I can do it very easily. It pays really well. It makes more than enough for me to live my minimalist life. And I'm very happy with it. So, and I, I don't put pressure on myself to find a job that, you know, both excites my soul and, you know, challenges my mind. I don't put that pressure on myself. I'm like, I need a job that I can do from home that in some way involves my skills. And that's more than enough for me. Yeah. I, I think you have the right approach. Uh, I've spoken to people who have jobs that, as you said, excite them and stimulate them. And even with those jobs, people have days where they don't like their job. It's still a job. As you identified by not taking your art scholarship, if you take something that you love and turn it into the means by which you paid your bills, you have to do it even when you don't want to. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to create the sort of stuff you don't want to create. 
necessarily. Um, yeah, so that's me now. And I would say like one thing that, um, is drastically different from when I was, you know, maybe in university to now, which is, it hasn't really been that many is like, I, I would say I'm genuinely, genuinely happy now. Whereas before, um, it was in and out. Like I would say, you know how I mentioned like there's a light inside of me. I just need to pull shit out of the way. The shit's out of the way. Well, it's that's shining. Good. <laughs> yeah. Um, how long have you been yeah. doing your work from home? Um, just a year. Yeah. So it hasn't been a really long time, but even when I was in school, I was happy because I love learning and I love like that sort of thing. And even when I was working a desk job, I knew like as long as I can transcend this and as long as I can fix this problem for myself, I'm going to be happy and I just need to fix the problem. I fixed the problem. And and now you're happy. Yeah. So yeah, now I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> so if that brings us to now, what what do you um what do you have going on now? What are you interested in? What are you passionate about? Are you still drawing boobs and does your mom still hang them on the wall? Or <laughs> <laughs> I I still am I recently got into watercolor painting. So I'm really into watercolor right now. Whereas when I was younger was I was doing more acrylic stuff like and stuff like that. Um but yeah, so I'm still painting and it is still a lot of um, women. I do still continue to do that. I don't know. There's just something about it when I, when I'm painting that I, 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 and specifically if it's a person that's in the image, I think about like, I create a character out of them and what they're like and what their life is like. Um, and I honestly, I just live a very, very slow life. And that's always what I wanted. Like I journal, I go to the gym. I, I have aspirations and hopes and stuff like that. Like, I think I wouldn't mind one day to have my own little company that maybe makes something physical, maybe because I'm really into sustainable products and stuff like that. So I wouldn't even mind like to have an one day or something like that. Um, what would you make? I don't know. I was, I'm just, I think that like owning your own enterprise and owning your own livelihood. That's something that I still, or that I deeply value. So I think working for another company, um, is something that I might do for a few more years, but I, I think ultimately I'd like to own my own livelihood. So even if it is just meaning being a freelancer or something like that, because I like have, I like the idea of being in control. I think when I had lost that first amazing uh, remote job that I had, it, it really, awoke me to the fact that, um, you know, an employee doesn't have a lot of, um, it's, there's no, there's not a lot of security in it. And it's the moment they don't want you, you're gone. Right. But if you build and create your own enterprise, you're at the front of that and you can, you know, through determination, hard work and organization, um, create something that's sustainable in some capacity. And, I like the idea of being sort of like the master of your own destiny. So although I'm not maybe necessarily on that journey right now, I know that in sure that's something that I really value and hold. Um, I think it just, for me, that's something I would want to do. And I'm not talking about, you know, like creating a huge company. I'm talking because my lifestyle is very um, uh, like, sort of pared down. Sure. So in minimalist. order for me to sustain myself, yeah, it's minimalist. So in order for me to sustain myself, I don't think I would need, I think my budget right now, it's like 
I would say $1,200 a month. So as long as I make that. You're good. Um, you're good. I'm good. Yeah. So I would just maybe want to have a little, even if it's just a side hustle, you know? Sure. Yeah, um, I understand. But I'm very, yeah, I'm very um, content with the way my working life is going and the fact that I can work remotely. I don't think there's a day that I'm not grateful for that, especially because I see the way that other people grind themselves down and burn out. Um, but that being said, I also think that it's, if you don't want to work a nine to five, it's completely accessible to you for you to uh, learn some skills and then slowly phase out of that. I don't think that this is some, you know, exclusive group of people. It's very, no, I think it's quite open, especially because you can learn so many things online. Yeah, yeah, you definitely you know? can. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think I would like to be married too. And I think I'm leaning towards wanting to have a child one day. Um, that's something I've been a fence sitter on for a while. Um, but actually since moving in with my boyfriend and um, I was really surprised to realize that I love... <laughs> like the typical sort of gender role of woman, which is like to cook, clean and to make sure everyone's comfortable. I, I've really fallen into that role and I could in extension see myself as a mom now in a way that I couldn't have before. Um, With one, so yeah. one child, two children, how many? One, one, one. one okay. Yeah. <laughs> 10? No. Uh, well, before we wrap it up here, I want to give you mm-hmm. the opportunity to have uh, any kind of closing thoughts. Uh, if you have anything that, that you've thought of, it, it sounds like you kind of just yeah. rattled one off there. But um, yeah, <laughs> if you have anything, else. I think, yeah, I do have one closing thought, um, which is. And I was having the discussion last night with with a friend of mine who is currently depressed. I I wanted I want to say that um, even for those of us who are going through extreme depression or suicidal thoughts or are just in a really bad place in their life, maybe they're around their toxic family members and they're very young and and they don't have a means to not be in that environment. Um, that the potential for joy and happiness is more available to you than you might think. Because I remember being in the depths of depression and then thinking, I'm always going to be depressed. I had lost sight of that little warm fire that was burning in my belly. And I had this thought that I'm I'm just going to be depressed. That's it. Life is bad. Life is sad. And um, I'm never going to be able to find a way out of and then now on the other side of that depression, you know, and and maybe it's because I've cultivated this mindset through my practice and gratitude and everything like that. But I, I think it's accessible. I think happiness is possible in a way that maybe you don't realize when you're depressed. And so that might be my one t- from my life is that life is a lot more elastic than you think life is has a lot more potential than you think the problem that you might have now like for me for example is is working from home that was another huge or sorry working in an office was a huge issue for me um the things that you think are going to be your demise it's not necessarily true It, it might just be a story that you're telling yourself in your head well put tia thank you very much for joining me for sharing your story for sharing your wisdom okay thank you so much That's the end of this episode's conversation. If you enjoy this show, please consider suggesting it to a friend and rate us highly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you didn't enjoy the show, let us know how we can improve it at bitesizebiographies.com 
slash feedback. One of my goals as a podcaster is to help you find things you might enjoy. Up next is a promotion from a fellow podcaster. If you enjoy it, why not check out their show? Please note, this is not a paid promotion. It's just an attempt at helping you find a podcast you might enjoy and helping fellow podcasters connect with audiences that enjoy their work. My name is Rob, and I'm host and guide to Songbirding, a new relaxed pace birding by ear podcast that takes you into the breeding territories of a number of bird species in Midwestern Ontario. You can find Songbirding wherever you get your podcasts or visit songbirding.com. Bite-sized biographies is a passion project created and hosted by me, Corey Thorpe. The inspiration for the podcast came as I listened to a recording of my deceased grandfather and found myself with questions I could no longer ask him. I realized that many people never take the time to tell their story, which means that rich and interesting sagas of life are continually being lost to time. I felt something had to be done to record those stories of life, and bite-sized biographies is my way of telling some of those stories while simultaneously encouraging you, no matter who you are, to tell your story. Thank you for listening.